Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. My name is Justin Douglas. So pumped to have you with me today on this episode of Beyond Boundaries. If you want to learn more about me or find show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, and questions, or you can reach out via Instagram at Pastor Justin Douglas. Also, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. It really does make a difference. I'm excited today to have Megan Chance with me. Uh, she is the author of Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. Uh, great interview. We talked so much about her experience. She is a wide open book, and it was like really helpful to hear her experience, to learn from it myself. Um, the whole time, all I could think of was how much I wanted my daughter to listen to this episode and read this book. Literally, as soon as I finished reading this book, I handed it to my 12-year-old and said, I want you to read this book. Um, that might be a little early for some people, but for her, I just know her personality and I know it works. Um, and she's been reading it and we've been dialoguing and talking about it. And uh, Megan was just super helpful to answer very practical, real questions and give context to so much of the I would say toxic theology that maybe we've been handed in our experience. And so uh, assuming you grew up maybe in a conservative uh, Christian community or something similar to that, you might relate really well to a lot of what she talks about. It also might be something that you didn't have these experiences and some of things like purity culture, which we talk about and other things may not be as relatable and that's fine too. Um, but I think uh, her experience in this particular book is really, really, really helpful uh, for those who have experienced this or maybe don't even know they've experienced it. Maybe um, it's a lens into, for me as even uh, a man, it's a lens into even some of the uh, preset ways I see things or even the ways I communicate that um, come from uh, this, this toxic way of relating uh, to women. And it's something that I've done a lot of work on and continue to be open to growing on and learning on and, and the things that, uh, that ultimately uh, I think we as, uh, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or even just someone trying to embody love more, we should seek to understand others. We should seek to listen to their lived experiences. And Megan does a great job sharing her lived experience in this and and is very vulnerable in this, and I really appreciate that. I think it makes for a great episode uh, when the guest is not only bringing some information that's very helpful, and bringing, but also bringing some lived experience and sharing and being vulnerable. And so I'm super thankful to Megan. Uh, here is my conversation with Megan Chance, author of Women Rising. Welcome everyone to Beyond Boundaries. I'm here with Megan Chance, and uh, we're going to talk about her book, women rising. Megan, tell them a little bit about the book yourself. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much to tell, right? Like you, <laughs> I could write a book because I did, because there's really so much to tell. Um, but a brief history. Um, I grew up in the conservative evangelical church. I was raised to believe that women were less than. And while that wasn't the language that was used, it was implied in basically everything. So women couldn't mm. lead. Women had to have the covering of men. Women were there essentially to bring their husband's pleasure, to serve them in the home, uh, to take care of children. Um, and so these were all of the teachings I grew up with. And I remember like really young thinking, mm, I don't think this feels, this doesn't feel right to me, but of course not being exposed to any other teachings, um, 
I, you know, bought in or I tried to buy in, I should say, um, and was constantly told that I wasn't doing girlhood or womanhood right, uh, that I was too opinionated, I was too loud, um, I was too competitive, I was always too much, right? Everyone kept telling me to shrink. And um, in addition to this, I was raised with purity culture and really harmful beliefs about women and their bodies and how um, I was taught basically my body caused men to do bad things. And so um, in my book, I talk about how I've been sexually assaulted actually several times, um, sadly, but a lot of the time I would internalize that as my fault because that's what I had been taught. Um, due to purity culture. And so my story is a story of trying so hard to be the woman, the girl that the church wanted me to be, but then coming to realize that all of these teachings that I had been taught are actually really harmful. And in a way that's not just like personally harmful, but harmful on a large scale. And so I eventually did missions work with sexually exploited women, um, with marginalized women. And I saw a pattern again and again of women being sexually abused, assaulted, belittled, not believed. Um, I saw it again and again and again. And at first, you know, because I had been taught such an individualism in the conservative church that I didn't make the connection to a larger system. I didn't see patriarchy at play. And it wasn't until towards the end of my work with exploited women that I had an encounter where I realized, wait a second, this is patriarchy. This is not, this is not what Christ wants. And it's actually harming women um, and leading to sexual assault, sexual trafficking, like all of this stuff is a result of patriarchy and um, people listening were like, whoa, how did you get there? I, I will get there. I will explain <laughs> how I got there. But that was my big realization. And so I yeah. actually quit my job as a missionary and wrote a book and started a podcast. And so that's where I am now. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you know, like even in your, like knowing, like, how, how did you get there? how did you connect all that? Like, and I think mm-hmm. one thing I'm noticing over many issues is that people are done kind of putting a bandaid on it or trying to make mm-hmm. it more, more, more flowery or, or clean up the language, but are more interested in like, what's the system supporting this injustice? Yes. Like what, what is at the root? So mm-hmm. we can just stop growing this. Like we need to stop right. growing this, not trying to like, Hey, let's cut back a little bit here and let's cut back a little bit here, but let it keep growing. We're, we're like, no, we're going to uproot that. Something new needs mm-hmm. to be planted there. And I, I appreciate your work in this because I just finished the um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been listening to that, but um, that has, I mean, so many echoes of like things I've dealt with in my time in ministry, mm-hmm. but also the, the podcast parts about women were incredibly, uh, it, it, there's nothing else to call it other than abuse. Like it, mm-hmm. it, that's what it was. And, and then on top of that, I, I'm a Liberty university grad. Um, mm-hmm. Don't judge me for that. Um, but <laughs> um, coming out of that and then hearing some of the stories of abuse there and covering it up and some of the like very patriarchal ways of um, belittling women or, or not believing women and seeing how that's not just 
a cultural thing alone, it's not divorced from theology is what I guess I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. Like there, there's a mm-hmm. theological belief that like, yes. I can, I cannot believe you because I'm in authority over you almost yes. like, and, and, and just how harmful that is in so much of uh, interaction. So I, mm-hmm. I appreciate your work and, and you'll get all kinds of opportunity here to explain that, but <laughs> let's start here. If someone doesn't mm-hmm. know, you, you mentioned a word or a phrase, purity culture. If mm-hmm. someone is outside of Christianity and has never heard what purity culture is, can you give a definition to purity culture or come close to what to get yes. update people on that? Yeah, I don't know if the definition I'll use is like, I don't know if it's like in the dictionary, but I can <laughs> yeah. tell you what it is essentially. Those so of us who grew cult- up in it know what it is. <laughs> yes, I'm exactly. trying to think about those on the outside. Yeah. Okay. So if you're not familiar in the evangelical Christian church, there is a whole movement, which um, they called like a purity movement, which was trying to prevent um, if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, let's mm-hmm. say we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, trying to prevent premarital sex. Mm-hmm. I think that's what their intention was. And I think even if we go farther, maybe their intention was that women wouldn't be objectified. So, mm-hmm. you know, if they were so covered up, maybe women wouldn't be objectified and men wouldn't be tempted by them. But basically purity culture was the set of teachings that, um, tried to dissuade uh, even, you know, children from having sex. And these teachings started young for me. And I think they started when I was like 11 or 12, um, that what I was taught as a woman was that, um, men were men or boys were very sexually voracious creatures, um, that they couldn't control themselves if they saw something that they found arousing. Um, and so my job as a young girl, cause remember these teachings started pre-pubescent before I reached puberty, um, that I was responsible for covering up my body. Um, and so that a man, a man or a boy would not feel sexually aroused by me. And so there was so much teaching on me, saving myself, keeping myself pure. Um, it was my responsibility to stop any kind of sexual thing happening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I took that to heart. Like I did cover up, I did follow the rules. Um, you know, it's like when you go to the pool, the, the boys could wear whatever they wanted and girls would be wearing t-shirts and shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and this teaching was taught again and again, your body is dangerous. Your body is harmful. You are a source of lust or the term that was commonly used was a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes young girls' bodies were likened to objects or food. Um, so what I was taught is that I was a flower and that each time something sexual happened to me, or I did something sexual, I'd lose a petal. And if I lost all of my petals, if I had five, I don't know how many, they never told me how many petals I had, but I would be worthwhile to no one. And so the teaching was no one wants a ball to flower. It's gross. Don't do anything sexual. Your whole worth is in your purity. Other teachings went that girls were a sucker, a lollipop, and no one wants a lollipop that has been licked. No one wants an Oreo that had been licked. No one wants a spit and cup. There were so many analogies that young girls were taught that they are objects to be consumed by men. 
And once they are consumed once or once they've been touched, they are no longer worthwhile. They no longer have value and they're no longer worth protection. And so I was raised with this and it was super harmful, super damaging. Um, But I remember being chastised for when I was 13 for wearing a shirt that when I raised my hand, like I said, this is the smallest sliver of my stomach showed and my youth pastor like shamed me, told me that men would do bad things, um, that I needed to change immediately because I was bringing shame upon myself. And so I did change. I (laughs) wore nothing but baggy shirts. And later that week, I had a stranger, on the street, when I was out with my youth group, I had lagged behind to pay, pet a stray dog. And this stranger came up and grabbed my breast when I was 13 years old. And I you thought it was that. my fault. Sh- I remember yeah. reading that in here and I was like, oh, yeah. And I that's mean, so this, hard. This... That's so hard because you've been taught that yeah. it's your fault. You don't have any, like, there's no, like right. the, all the injustice of that act falls on mm-hmm. your shoulders for doing yes. something wrong instead of, mm-hmm you being violated, that someone violated your space and your, you know, autonomy, like the, instead of that reality of like you being empowered, like to be like, that was wrong. Like that was wrong. I'm not, instead you're almost gaslit into this. It was something I did. Like that's so, yeah, exactly. I wasn't covered up. And that's exactly what I thought. Mm. I didn't tell anyone. I was obviously completely terrified and traumatized Mm -hmm by what happens. And so I like ran up with a group. No one had even noticed that it had happened. Um, and that night I had nightmares. I like woke up crying like the Mm. next morning and like no one, like, and I couldn't tell anyone what it was really about because I thought if I told someone what happened, it would show that I wasn't valuable anymore, that the, what happened to me was justified because I had not covered up or my, my being was, too sexy or tempting. And, and I will say that this thinking is so dominant that it even followed me into my twenties. I had another experience where I was actually on the mission field and, um, there was a man who I was trapped and a man masturbated to me, uh, which is a terrible thing to happen, but I was teaching some student two young kids tennis lessons and this man approached and started masturbating outside the fence I tried to fight him off with my tennis racket he didn't care um and he and I didn't have a phone and I didn't know where I was and I didn't have any way to get out of the situation and so I just remember hiding behind a wall with these two kids trying to protect them and um I I remember like (laughs) just being traumatized. Eventually someone did come to my rescue and chase the man away. Um, but I remember feeling like, uh, this was my fault. Um, I, I was showing too much skin, even though I was covered from head, like I was wearing a t-shirt and and pants. I thought it must've been my fault and, um, feeling dirty, feeling like I wanted to take my body off and discard it, uh, feeling like I would never be clean again. And I remember like, they, cause I was on the mission field, they contacted like my coach, the guy that, you know, this married couple that was supposed to help us. And I remember him calling me and praying over me. And he said, whatever is wrong with Megan, that men keep doing this to her. I pray it. I pray that she's clean again. I pray that it comes off her. And wow. this is like, I'm like, tw- at this point I was 23 years old and 
even then, I think he was really genuinely trying to help me. But even in his prayer, I was the problem. It was my problem because this thing happened to me and it's happened to me before and it happened to me previously. So there must be something wrong with her that this keeps happening. But here's the truth. One in three women this happens to, probably more. And we've been trained not to talk about it because we're not believed. And people tell us, well, why did it take you 10 years to speak up? Well, because I told, I was told it was my fault. And we see how people treat people who speak up. And so I I just, for me, it's, um, it's super damaging. It's Mm. pervasive throughout society. I remember giving a talk in a church about sexual assault. I told some of the stories I just told, and I said, okay, so what is the problem here? And this woman kept on answering, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You were, you shouldn't have been there. You should have done something different. And then finally she realized that she was victim blaming me and started sobbing in front of this whole room and said, what have I been teaching my daughter? And this is, this is the problem. This is the problem of patriarchy. We're putting the, uh, the, the sin of sexual assault on women's shoulders when we have no control over that happening to us. It had nothing to do with what I was wearing, what I was doing. This was solely on the men who decided to cross boundaries, to not respect my autonomy or my consent. This was not on me. This was on them, but our society and specifically the church has a whole teaching on how this is women's fault. Mm, yeah, I I think it's interesting that you bring up society and you bring up in that even analogy, uh, someone mm-hmm. who had a daughter or that story, someone yeah. who had a daughter. Um, I have a daughter, she's 12. And mm-hmm. I see this very clearly. So I was a youth pastor. So, I mean, mm-hmm. not only have I seen this in some ways I've participated in it. I think I, think I caught in my mid twenties, like, Ooh, I don't know how I feel about this just from like, even just psychological development, how this is like shame. Mm -hmm. This is like, Mm -hmm. I'm just very anti using shame as a motivator for Mm -hmm. behavior in any, in any, even if the behavior ends up like, I sometimes wonder if we use shame, if, you know, the end results really do justify the means, because I think that that shame leaves something that Mm -hmm. eventually needs to be uprooted, like, and And whatever lesson was learned from it is probably going to be uprooted with it. And so um, just seeing how much of the purity culture, you know, the true love weights culture where we sign the cards at all the Christian festivals, every Christian festival I went to growing up had an opportunity to sign a card. I signed a card multiple times every summer when we went to those Mm -hmm. festivals. I, I remember every winter when we would go to different retreats and things like that, there would be you know, that kind of call, uh, out to all the students. So it seems like I grew up in a very similar culture, obviously from, from this perspective of a, of a man, like that was a different mm-hmm. experience. Um, uh, and I wasn't necessarily aware of how my female friends were experiencing that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. and I was homeschooled too. So I was even more, I think in some ways sheltered from, um, how society was also working in this because Mm -hmm. now my daughter's 12, she goes to public school and she's been dress coded many times (laughs) and will probably continue to be dress coded because I'm not partnering with the school. Like I'm not, this is Mm -hmm. something where I'm like, I don't, I think it's funny that my boys can wear basketball jerseys to school 
and mm -hmm. there's not a problem here, but my daughter can wear something that's the same exact, you know, amount. And now we mm -hmm. have a problem and like, it's a shoulder, like this isn't even mm -hmm. cleavage, like, and like, mm -hmm. like, and I'm just like, I don't under, and, and the thing I just keep getting back as well, it's a distraction. And I'm like, no, it's not like, it's just not mm -hmm. like, and if you want to say mm -hmm. that you've lost all, you know, you've lost all high ground for me in any, in any like legitimate conversation. So anyway, that's like my daughter's very much like she's an eight on the Enneagram. I mean, I, she doesn't mm -hmm. know that, but I know that because I'm an eight <laughs> on the Enneagram. And yeah. so, so are, are, do you do the Enneagram? Yeah, I'm a seven wing eight. Oh, okay. So okay. So you've got a little bit I, of that I, eight in you. There oh, you I have a very strong <laughs> eight wing. I will tell you what's up. That's good. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, she, she is, you know, not afraid to call out the uh inconsistencies in that and she's just very different than like her generation just is so different than my generation when it comes to seeing this differently which i'm so excited that i've never i haven't handed her any of that purity culture i'm sure i have some in the sense of just like not knowing what i've what i've handed her but i haven't mm -hmm. done it in any systematic way and i guess my question to you as someone who's very much um aware of the toxicity within purity culture and within the shame that it certainly brings about in women, what would your advice be to someone who has a 12 year old daughter does not want to hand them purity culture, but also wants them to be wise in how they mm -hmm. are sexually. Um, Cause I still do think there's value. And I, I, I don't know that I would say mm -hmm. it, it's value in not having premarital sex. I think it's value mm -hmm. in that, that, that when sex comes without commitment, there's a lot of danger in that place and not danger mm -hmm. in a sense of like, if that happens to you, you should be, you should feel broken or something, but more danger in that it can lead to brokenness when, when, when sex happens outside of commitment. And maybe you have a different perspective mm -hmm. on that than me, but I guess as I'm trying to steward my three kids, mm -hmm. I'm thinking through like, man, it's going to be interesting teaching my two younger boys this, but my daughter who's 12 and kind of leading the way. I want to like, I want to, I want to empower her. I want her to feel like she's in control and I want her to also feel like um, it's okay to make mistakes here and still not, and not, and not be like shamed about it, but also a feeling like a mistake here is it can be um, a big mm -hmm. deal. It can be a traumatic yeah. experience. And so mm -hmm. I, 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 I think you, you said something earlier when you brought up purity culture, you said like, Maybe these were people with good intentions. And I know a lot of people who bought into hook, hook line and sinker to purity culture that mm -hmm. I do believe were well-intentioned people who didn't realize what the outcomes would be. Um, mm -hmm. I want, I don't want to be the same person well-intentioned yeah. and then I haven't thought through the outcome. So in your knowledge, like what would you be telling youth pastors or parents to be teaching kids these days? Well, I think the first thing that we need to teach about, we need to think about what's the problem here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Why? why is my body even considered distracting? What about society is teaching women that their bodies are sexual objects? What is it about society that is teaching little boys to view little girls' bodies as sexual objects? And so I want to zoom out here and like, what is actually the problem? Well, the problem is that women are being objectified and viewed as sexual objects, um, whether or not they're doing anything sexual at all. And so I want to view patriarchy. I want to talk about patriarchy and I want to share what actually causes sexual assault. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think this is a huge, massive failing of purity culture. Mm -hmm. Purity culture 
teaches that, you know, sexual assault is about lust. That is not at all what causes sexual assault. Sexual assault, plain and simple, is caused by power differentials. There are so many studies that come out about this. There's a psychoanalyst, her name is Wen Yonak. She studies this specifically. And she says that while sexual assault might be sexual in nature, um, it's ultimately about power and control. And so she gives all of these examples. When we hear stories of sexual abuse, sexual assault, we often see it in a way of someone in power having, doing it to someone who doesn't have power. And so we'll see adult do it to a child. We'll see a youth pastor do it to a child. We'll see a pastor do it to a child. We'll see it a pastor do it to a woman or a secretary. We will see a professor do it to a student. And so over and over again, we see these power differentials. And I think we need to even back up even further and see the power differentials that are present between men and women. And so sexual assault is this idea that, that men feel entitled to a woman's body without her consent. It's about power. It's about domination. It's about control. And so I think if we understand that the problem isn't sexual feelings, it's not being sexually aroused. Those are completely normal things for anyone going through puberty, right? Mm -hmm. That's completely normal. And I think it's really important that we don't shame those. What we need to understand and what we need to be teaching is the power differentials that are present in society. What messages, and this is even outside of the church, what messages are we giving about women's sexuality? Does a woman only rise to the top through objectifying? Like, and I don't even want to say objectifying herself, but it's what we've been taught, right? Cosmo magazine, all about mm. women, how they can be skinny enough, how they can be sexy enough, how they can mm. get a man. Um, you know, I talk about in my book how when I was growing up, all of my societal's teaching about being woman was how to please a man sexually, how to be attractive to him, how to be skinny, how to do my makeup right, how to be hairless, all of these things, mm-hmm. how to make myself sexually attractive to men. What I grew up with in the church was not how to be sexually attractive to men, but how not to be sexually attractive to men, but how to be submissive to men, how to meet their needs. So they don't have to deal with their internal, uh, you know, feelings of sexual nature or whatever. I was so I was supposed to erase myself. So they didn't have to struggle with it. I was supposed to make their life easier. I was there to serve them. And so there are two different messages, but they both boil down to the same thing that women are there for men. And and that's present in society because we live in a patriarchal society. And it's also present within the church, but it looks different. And so I want to back up there. And that's what I want to first talk about. Women, you, my daughter, are not there for the viewing of men, for the pleasure of men. Um, And when you are dating or interested, you need to make sure that that man sees you as a person um, doesn't try to control you, doesn't ask you to be submissive, to really look out for these red flags that indicate that he thinks he's better than you or that you have to listen to him um, because ultimately that's what's causing sexual assault. And if you look at the studies, it's all there. Mm. Um, this is this is about power differentials. And so I think the reason that we see this so much in the church, why we see it so much with purity culture is because it, what the church was teaching was power differentials, men be in charge, women be submissive. That is inherently setting up power differentials between men and women. That is what causes any kind of abuse, but specifically sexual abuse as well. And I just want to point out a lot of people, what I was taught is purity culture is like, sex is great as long as it's within marriage. And I would like to really dismantle that because I think there's a lot of unhealthy sex that happens within marriage. All these marriage books, right? Like you have, um, 
love and respect and all of these, like every man's battle. And mm-hmm. I haven't read most of them, but um, there's a woman named Sheila Gregoire. I don't know if you know who she is, mm-hmm. but she talks a lot about this, where she dismantles these ideas that are taught in, in Christian books about sex. And I think there's so much sexual abuse happening within sexual um, Christian marriages, sure. because we're taught that women deny your needs. If you don't want to have sex, that's fine. There's no such thing as marital rape. Um, and they're having these sexual experiences where it's all about the man and his pleasure mm-hmm. and has nothing to do with her. And that is literally making her an object to be used by him. And so if I yeah. want to talk to my kids about it, I don't have kids yet, yeah. but when I do, what I'm going to talk to them about is I'm going to talk to them about power and control and consent and, um, coming to, have my daughter realize that she's not there for the sexual pleasure of men. I want my Mm -hmm. sons to understand if he is feeling sexually aroused, that he's not entitled to get something for Mm -hmm. that. Um, uh, that that's something, you know, that, that, I mean, women have sexual urges too, but we, you know, that's something we have to deal with on our own. It's not like Mm -hmm. we're going to go up and grab someone's junk because mm-hmm. we're aroused, but that's what happens to women. And that's because of, of society teaches that men are more powerful and have more responsibility and are more entitled to women's bodies than vice versa. And so I think that's why when we see violence happening, it is almost always from men. Um, and I think that's because they've been taught that they're entitled to things and that they can, yeah. you know, get it by force. And then on top of that, if you think about what patriarchy is teaching men, so it's not just harmful to women, but to men, you're, you're telling men they can't have their full range of emotions, um, that any kind of physical touch that's not sexual in nature is not valid. So I think a mm. lot of these boys are growing up starved from touch, like girls are allowed to hold hands, cuddle, whatever. But from the ages of like five or six, boys are not allowed to have that need met, that need for physical touch. Mm-hmm. And then they're only allowed to touch in a way that's sexual. And so when when they like a girl, they think the only acceptable way to interact with her is on a sexual level. And I and I can actually think of interactions where I had um I felt completely uh devalued in a situation with a male friend. But now upon further reflection, I'm like, I don't think he knew how to interact with me in a way that wasn't sexualized because he, this is, this is what he was taught. And so I think patriarchy really harms men too. If you're, if you're taught that the only acceptable anger or emotion to express is anger, um, then yeah, that's why we're going to see more violence from men. If, if they're taught that they always have to be in control and dominating, then that makes sense why they would control and dominate others. And so that's why I think we really need to zoom out and see the messages that patriarchy is giving both men and women, because it's not helpful to anyone. Mm. That's so good. Like that, that just needs to be a clip right there that people listen to. Like, I think, I think the one, one word you said that I've been thinking about a lot lately is consent. And I think it's interesting because I can honestly say in all my time as a student, and even as an adult, I don't ever remember a pastor telling me consent. Like mm-hmm. you need, before you enter into a relationship with someone, before you even kiss someone, before you mm-hmm. hold their hand, ask for consent. Like um, it was never talked about. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I look back now and I'm like, I'm shocked that that was never yep. talked about. That, that would just seem like square one. 
Like now mm-hmm. it might be that, Hey, don't do that. But if you're going to do that, get yeah. consent. But it was always like, right. no, we're not going to give the, like, for example, it was the don't have sex. So we're not going to give mm-hmm. out condoms, but it's like, yeah, it, it may, even if you're going to say don't have sex, wouldn't it be good to have something like in the event mm-hmm. that you, you chose to do that? Or like it, 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 I don't know. It just seems to me like an interesting reality that the church has never really taught consent yet Mm -hmm. one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control and having enough self-control to pause and be like Mm -hmm. hey i need to get this person's consent if we're going Mm -hmm. to uh, have a physical relationship even Mm -hmm. even beyond sex but um yep uh i i need i need to you know get consent first so i mean have Mm -hmm. you seen churches teaching consent do you remember in your youth any uh consent like any talks about consent that maybe were there and I just missed it. I just, I don't want my oh. perspective of purity culture to be the only mm-hmm. one, but I, I sense that wasn't really something that was emphasized or no, consent wasn't taught at all. Yeah. Consent wasn't taught at all. And I will say to take it to another degree, the way that purity culture was taught is like women were your prize, right? If you yeah. did it right, then you got the reward of a pure virgin or whatever. Yeah. And so I even remember um, you talked about like signing purity pledges. What I did in my youth group is this, I wrote this letter when I was like 12, but I wrote it was a letter to, yeah, to my future <laughs> yeah. wife. Yeah. <laughs> yes. To my future <laughs> husband. <laughs> And about how I was saving myself, but even the language that they told me, I read it as an adult. I actually gave it to my, I, I did follow, like quote unquote, follow the rules. I was a virgin when I got married. Yeah. Um, but, and, and again, I think the way I arrived there, like you said, like, um, I'm glad, I'm actually glad that at this point in my life, that I, I have such I only have healthy sexual experiences with my husband mm-hmm. because he's an incredible man and values consent. And I'm really grateful mm-hmm. for that. But the way that I arrived there is really messed up. But the letter that I wrote, it, literally what they told it, like they had the script for us to write. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I am a gift that has not been touched or unwrapped. So you get to unwrap this gift and here you are. And I, and I, rem- this was literally the language is like, I am an unopened gift for you. I am. And here you go on our wedding night. And I, and I read that letter as an adult and I was heartbroken that wow. that's what I was taught about it. And I, gave it to my husband kind of as a joke when we got married and he's like, this is depressing. And it is, it's really yeah. sad. Um, and so no consent wasn't taught at all. Instead, what was taught was I'm the prize. If you keep it in your pants, essentially, yeah. or even if you don't keep it in your pants, like yeah. that's kind of just like women are there for you and your sexual pleasure and that's literally what is taught in so many marriage books is like how do you fix a a a man's addiction to pornography you you are sexually available to him at all times like again it's her fault not him it's always you to be sexually available and something that we're taught all the time women are taught is like you need to be sexually available or he's going to cheat on you because men are so out of control mm. that this, they, this is, they're going to get this need met, whether or not, you know, you have it. And so it's just, there's so much there to unpack, but these, these ideas are really, really harmful. And I will say that I encountered sexual assault from men and my peers in this way, yeah. um, in the church. 
yeah. that touched my body without my consent. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think starting at consent is a great spot, but we have so much more that we need to add to that conversation. Right. Like you said, the power dynamics of everything mm-hmm. I think in our world right now are being discussed, yeah. obviously racially um, all over the place. We're talking about the reality of, of power dynamics in systems of injustice or inequity. And so, yeah. Um, when, when I think of like talking to my daughter about this, mm-hmm. I obviously think consent's important. The power differential is important. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your view of dating? Like, I mean, maybe these are things you haven't really thought about, but like you and I grew up in a world where like we kiss yeah. dating goodbye. You know what I mean? Right. You don't date anybody. Like you, you, you only get involved with somebody if the goal is to marry him. And, um, yeah. and I mean, I married my high school sweetheart. So like mm-hmm. in a lot of ways I would say, uh, so, so, and me and my wife have a great relationship. I would mm-hmm. say the first, the first few years of our relationship and Hopefully she doesn't mind me saying this, you know, publicly sexually were difficult because we had Mm -hmm. both kind of grown up in this, like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then the moment, like we could do it, it was like, this is weird. And there's so much shame built into this. Like Mm -hmm. we could not, we could not mentally and emotionally disengage from the shame connected to it that it just, for a while it didn't work. And I've literally seen friends who grew up in purity culture, get married and get divorced within a year or two. And when I talk to them, it's you know, 90% of that is sexual, like it's sexual compatibility and that incompatibility from growing up in such, I guess, I guess what I'm saying, it's not like a light switch. You can't just turn it on. Mm -hmm. You can't just have all the shame and then it's gone the next day, the moment Mm -hmm. you put a ring on it. Like it's not, there, there, there is a long-term effect to this. Right. So I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm kind of talking or getting at is like, what, what does a path look like? And obviously I think in our world, what we're realizing is there's not one path. There's a lot of paths. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we think about a Jesus centered approach, because obviously like I still want my life to be shaped by Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, And that involves all of my life, including my sexual life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, How, how should I be guiding my children. And obviously in my own sexual life, I still have a sexual life, but just because I'm married doesn't mean I don't have, uh, you know, I I don't want the fruits of the spirit to shape my sexual life with my wife, but I'm more saying Mm -hmm. like certainly people who haven't, who are coming into their sexuality, who are figuring out that. And I think, and I I also want to be clear, we haven't talked at all about this yet, but, um, Mm -hmm. even the way in which you and I were handed, um, write a letter to your future husband. Like Mm -hmm. I've already started using language with my children of, your future partner. Whenever I talk yeah. about that with them, like, I don't want to assume, uh, you're going mm-hmm. to, uh, the heteronormativeness of it all. Mm-hmm. I don't want to assume. Right. So, so even that is another area where I feel like obviously you and I weren't, that was never considered, no. you know what I mean? So, no. so, um, but, but I guess, I guess, uh, yeah, share a little bit about that. Like, what do you see some healthy paths, um, being in dating or in, in, in courting or in, in, marriage, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a harder question to answer because yeah. I'm, I, I'm not at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <Don't have kids. laughs> um, this is but... a selfish question. This is not, I'm, this is for <laughs> no one else. It's only for me. No. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot there and I think again, it's so much about 
learning to have healthy communication, understanding power, understanding all of that. And there's something you set up at the beginning that, oh yes. So you're talking about like um, the switch. Yeah. And I think that's really important to acknowledge because I also, when I started having sex, struggled with that, a lot of Mm -hmm. shame-based stuff. Um, And I actually want to say just for your audience that this actually shows up in women's bodies. It's um, Mm -hmm. women who grew up in purity cultures, body uh, responds the same way that a lot of women who have been sexually assaulted or raped shows up. And so a lot of women, yes, a lot of women who grew up in purity culture have vaginismus where their body will actually physically shut down the act of sex. Um, and they're seen, this is actually something studied. So I had a, um, pelvic health physical therapist on the line. And so she specifically works with like women, um, and who have what's called hypertonic tonic pelvic floors, which can lead to a lot of painful sex problems with sex, um, is, but their body will physically shut down the act. And they've only seen that with survivors of sexual violence, but they, or, purity culture. And they're actually seeing this about the same rate of girls or women who have gone up, grown up in purity culture, also having this physical response, even PTSD um, from purity culture. And there's another research of that. So people who are listening, if they want to look it up, um, look up Amy Moses, who's a pelvic health uh, physical therapist. And they're both um, on my podcast. If you want to search for it, they talk about this. And then the the other person is Dr. Laura Anderson. Uh, She just got her PhD. She has, um, she's a therapist that talks about um, religious trauma, but her specialty was actually about sexual assault. And she talks in depth about how purity culture in a lot of ways, I mean, it is abuse and it shows up as sexual abuse in a lot of women's bodies and not everyone, but a lot of women will have responses that are similar to PTSD. Um, their bodies will, will shut down the, the act of sex. And so that, but I, I know plenty of women who actually have vaginismus due to purity culture and that are trying to unlearn that, trying to be okay with their sexuality and their bodies. But, Hmm. um, I just wanted to share that because that's wild. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was a thing like that. That's see, these are the things that like, yeah. What name, uh, give the name of your podcast, uh, faith and feminism, right? Yeah. Faith and feminism. If you're, so if they want to look it up, uh, there's just look up, search for Amy Moses. She's a pelvic floor physical therapist. And I think everyone should listen, whether you're a man or a woman should listen to that podcast. I think it's really important that we talk about it because I think the female body has been so stigmatized and we do need to talk about it and it's causing a lot of problems. Um, And then the other one, her name is Dr. Laura Anderson, where I just mentioned where, where I talked about purity culture, that episode is actually um, coming out next, like next Tuesday. So the, I don't, it's December. It'll probably, it'll probably be out by the time this comes out. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So she, she talks about recovering from sexual assault and she does specifically talk about how uh, purity culture actually Mm -hmm. shows up in the body as if uh, the same way it does with survivors of sexual violence. Um, So I just wanted to point that out because I think that's really important. No, that's good. Um, I I mean, we don't have to talk any, you don't have to give me any more advice. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll I'll call you on my own when I have questions about my daughter. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, so, so, so we've talked a lot about purity culture and power dynamics and consent. What, Mm -hmm. um, what do you see in the future of the church? I feel like we're in the middle of this mass exodus right now, which Mm -hmm. I, in a lot of ways, even as a pastor fully support, um, 
I think the church has been on the wrong side of racial justice. I think the church has Mm -hmm. been on the wrong side of affirmation toward the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, the church has clearly been on the wrong side of women uh, and women's issues and having any knowledge or desire or awareness of women's issues. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're starting to feel the repercussions of all of that. And I think honestly, COVID has kind of in some ways accelerated that because it got people distant enough from the church uh, mm-hmm. for a period of time that gave them this reality. They're like, Oh God, didn't strike me down. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, like this, like this reality that like, I don't need this in a mm-hmm. sense of like, mm-hmm. we've just, I think so many people also part of that, like not purity culture, but part of that same culture also has this like guilt and shame with attendance, involvement, commitment. And I think people are starting to shed that guilt of like, I'm not involved enough or I'm not there enough. Or if I stopped going, I would be on the outs with God or something like, yeah. as we enter into this new, whatever the church is going to be, what are your, um, what are you seeing? And it could be related to, could be related to your book. It could not be. I'm just Mm -hmm. curious. I like asking people who are at the intersection of like thinking differently beyond the boundaries and, Mm -hmm. and also, um, like what they're seeing from their perspective, the church becoming in the next few years? Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great question. And I think something I do want to clarify is like, when we talk about the church, I think you and I are talking about the evangelical church. Um, And so for me, I, you know what? I left evangelicalism in 2016, when they elected Donald Trump. I mean, I don't think I would have said that out loud um, because I, I think it was hard to admit that it was everything, but I, I wasn't deconstructing Christ. I was deconstructing the powers and principalities that we saw in play at the church, homophobia, racism, uh, patriarchy, all of these things, all of these isms that I think don't reflect Christ. And um so what I want to bring us to there, there's a couple, uh, there's a couple of directions that my, my head is going in, mm-hmm. but I want to say what kind of saved me from <laughs> giving up. I would never give up on Christ mm-hmm. um, because I love Jesus. I love what he did. I love the way he stood up to abusive systems, to the powers that be, that he brought those in from a margin, that he included women in ministry, that he liberated them in so many subtle ways, which I could talk about forever. Um, So I loved Jesus. I was really done with the institution of the church, um, at least the way it had been presented to me. And it was actually through reading womanist um, theology. So womanist is black woman, like black feminist Mm -hmm. Uh, theology. Um, And they, the way they talk about the Bible was in such an authentic um, way that called out these power differentials that I realized that while my um, brand or my brand, my tract, whatever of Christianity was really gross with patriarchy and white supremacy and Christian nationalism, there were pure strands 
of the faith that had survived. And so if we look at the black church, so there's always been two churches, right? Um, my, I had someone on my podcast, talk to me about it. Her name is Rose J. Percy, if you want to listen to it, but she talks about the people's church and the ruler's church for as long as there's been time, there has been people using religion to dominate and control others. We see this in scripture with the Pharisees. What are they except the religious elite that try to use their rules and their opinions to completely miss the point of faith, like, like, right, to serve, to love your neighbors yourself, they completely miss that and make it about all of these rules about, you know, you can't do anything on the Sabbath, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we see from actually the Bible People using religion as a way to control people, of, as a way to make them afraid. Um, and I think this, this is what we would call the ruler's church. So they're using it as a way to control power, to control populace, to stay in power. And so we see that this is, this is a way for me to be superior to you. Mm-hmm. Um see that in in the Bible, we see this continuing across history. We know that missions, you know, in the medieval times was people going and killing anyone that wasn't a Christian and claiming that land for Christ. We know that. Um, Yet we know these stories. We know that in the United States, Christianity was used to uphold slavery, that it was used to uphold white supremacy. Um, This has always been true. Religion, faith, Christianity, any type of religion. We can talk about Islam or Mm -hmm. Hinduism. We can see people using it to control people, to maintain maintain power. But I think there's a true church, which... um, uh, uh, Rose J. Percy called the People's Church, and I think this is actually from um, James Cone. But don't oh, yeah. quote me on that. You'll have to listen to the podcast because okay, okay. uh, because I don't remember exactly because she was like kind of reteaching me something. But there's the People's Church, and and at the same time we've had this dominant using uh, Christianity or whatever for power to maintain power to harm people we also have seen christianity like what i would call a true christianity of those bringing those from the margin in and so while we see slaveholders using christianity we also saw the most prominent abolitionists led by christianity to fight it while we see um, martin luther king and so many other civil rights activists using Christianity, understanding the core tenets of Christianity to call for justice. We see the people at, you know, different schools, right, who didn't want to lose their status or whatever, mm-hmm. using Christianity to maintain segregation, to maintain yeah. racism. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's two different churches that have always existed. We have the People's Church and the Ruler's Church. And I want to be part of the People's Church. Yeah. And the only way I can be part of the People's Church is to learn my complicity um, in the ruler's church. What have I done? What have I been a part of? I've been a part of patriarchy. I've been a part of homophobia. I've been a part of white supremacy. I'm complicit in those systems because that's what I was raised in. And then I grew up and I encountered different things that led me to question it. And I realized, oh my goodness, I'm being complicit. I actually don't think Jesus is for these harmful systems. And, you know, the Bible talks about powers and principalities about a battle is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. I think powers and principalities are not demons or whatever we've been told. I actually think they're powers and principalities. I think they're (laughs) systems of oppression 
that have been harming people for a long time. And I will not be complicit in those systems anymore. And so I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn to repent. I'm going to learn through loving kindness to do better. And so for me being part of the people's church, I think the true church of Christ is realizing my complicity, continually asking and evaluating myself and what ways am I trying to be superior to others and use that superiority for my own benefits because God tells us to come as a servant, you know, to give up our power, to give up our rights. And so I ask myself that question all the time. Am I acting superior? Because you know what? People in the deconstruction community can do this too. I'm better than you because I've deconstructed and you haven't. And so now I'm better than you. And so I'm constantly evaluating that, that idea that I'm, I'm better that I'm superior because of whatever mm-hmm. and asking myself, am I being complicit in harmful systems? How can I do better? And I think that's the process of sanctification. I think that's the process of discipleship. And for me, the, the primary teachers I'm learning from Christianity today are those on the margin. So it's, it's black women mainly that mm-hmm. I am gobbling up um, reading their materials, um, women on women minorities um, that I'm learning so much from right now, mm-hmm. and so all of that to say, I'm not sad. <laughs> I am not sad about people leaving the rulers' church. Yeah. I'm not sad about people leaving a system that put Donald Trump in power. I'm not sad about them leaving a system that says like masks are bad. Um, I'm not mad about them leaving a system that doesn't give a care for their neighbor or what they're suffering through. I'm happy about that because I think they're actually leaving the oppressive ruler's church. And I think maybe they're going to wander in the desert for a while. I felt like I did. And then I think they're a lot of us, I think you're going to find the people's church. And I think it's mm. going to look different, but the church has constantly gone through reform. This is not anything new. Um, and I, I, I think we'll find ourselves through listening and learning to, from those on the margins and centering their voices. And so I'll mention a few right now that I love. Dr. Will Gaffney wrote an incredible book called Mid- uh, Womanist Midrash. Mm. Um, a lot of civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King has great writings. Um, James Cone has some good writings. Um, and then you can also, some other people that I know personally, Kat Armas, she's a Latina writer. She wrote, um, oh gosh, I forgot the title of it. She wrote a book that I read yeah. and I can't remember the title of it, but I think there's people who are leading from the margins. Um, and those are the people that we, I think can come back to the authentic, Christian faith too. I think it's, um, I really love that the power church or the, uh, the people's church and the, and the power church, or is that what it was? The power church or is it the, uh, the, the term is that's used as rulers, church. rulers, church, the rulers, rulers church. church versus people, but the rulers church being about power and the people's church being about people would be my guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so like, I, yeah. I think that that picture of the rulers church is so unique because it's funny that you say it because I'm, I've been, uh, so you don't know my journey or unless you did any research, but I don't expect that you did. But in 2019, I lost my license in the denomination I was in because I became LGBT affirming mm-hmm. and the church I was in was LGBT affirming. Like we were 99, we did a vote and 99.6% was LGBT affirming. So, mm-hmm. um, in that process, we, you know, after 
because of the denomination owning everything, they got everything. And then we just went and mm -hmm. started a new community. Um, and we are kind of the birthing something new out of the ashes of that. And mm -hmm. it's conflicting because so much of what I've been, how I've been taught to plant a church mm -hmm. is the ruler's church. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like so much of who I am as a pastor is that people's church thing, right? Mm -hmm. But like so much of what educated me and this is how you do it. This is the business side of it. This is the, you got to get a building. You got it. But like last mm -hmm. year we gave away 67% of our budget. I've never been in a church mm -hmm. that's given away that much of their budget to mm -hmm. other nonprofits in the area that are doing work, homeless work, stuff like that. We're trying to do it differently. We don't have a building, but like, then there's this feeling of like, we need to get a building or we need to do this or we need to do that because that's what churches do, you know? And I think, I think it's going to take some time for even the people who have caught a vision for what the new like people's church looks like to like mm -hmm. get more comfortable shedding so much of what the ruler's church handed us as dogmatic, even if they didn't necessarily say it was dogmatic it was so much a part of who we were, I think, okay. as part being attached to that. I don't know. I, this isn't really a question. It's just more me saying, like, I love that analogy, mm -hmm. though, because it gives me, like, an either-or statement. Is this a ruler's church decision or a people's church decision? Or just that, right. like, that, that, that dichotomy. And then you said mm -hmm. that reformation has always been happening. And what's very unique is, like, almost, almost every about 500 years, the church has what I guess you could call a major reformation. And it seems like mm -hmm. I think we're in the midst of that. I mean, now, obviously I have a very American landscape of the church, mm -hmm. so I don't want to, I don't want to impose that on the world. Um, and so like, I, I feel like here in Western culture, Christianity, pr predominantly white evangelicalism, we're going through some type of reckoning that is going to lead into a reform for at least us. I don't want to speak that over mm -hmm. Africa or mm -hmm. Asia or Latin America. Right. I'm just more saying for us, we're clearly going through something and previously, you know, you'd mentioned like the Reformation during Martin Luther, Martin Luther for example, mm -hmm. like that was about 500 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. that's very interesting how we have these like waves of uh, reforms that when you study church history kind of build up and then, you know, something happens. And I feel like I feel like the church needs to be made new again. I mean, it needs to be made new regularly, but there's something mm -hmm. definitely big that needs to shift or. I don't know why my kids would have any reason to go to church, at least the way I grew up going to church. And mm -hmm. I, if they didn't go to church the way I grew up going to church, I would, I wouldn't want them to go to church the way I grew up going to church. And that's, and that's mm -hmm. not like a slight at my parents or the things I learned. I, I want to, I don't feel like I have to burn everything down in my past in order to move forward. I want to honor that there was a lot of good things I learned in church, but I guess what I'm saying is like, as I recognize the systems and how much of that I've had to unlearn, I feel like the principles that were good about that, that I, that I would love to learn my kids to learn can be learned in a way where the oppressive systems that they had, that I had to be handed in order to learn that aren't there anymore. Like, or aren't, mm -hmm. aren't just the cost of doing business kind of, you know what I right. mean? Like, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So that, 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 that dichotomy is really good. That, that, uh, mm -hmm. that ruler and people, sorry, that I'm just, I have never <laughs> thought of it that way. So I'm just sitting here processing it verbally on a podcast with you and uh, mm -hmm. thankful for everyone listening. <laughs> I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I was just more, that that's an interesting. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a quote by Maya Angelou that says, once you know better, you do better. Um, and I think that's basically, we know we're learning to, to know better and do better. Um, I would encourage people who are intrigued by this idea of rulers church versus people's church to listen to the podcast. Cause I did not do it justice. Um, but she actually talks about, this was really crazy, but she broke down traits of the people's church, which is the rulers church down to worship style. It was oh, very fascinating. And I, and I, and I, I will not, uh, yeah, I will that, not try just, and repeat just, it because I don't remember. Uh, that's a good that's a good teaser because yeah. I'm going to go listen to that. Yeah. I want to hear about that because yeah. I'm sure it's I'm sure there's things I've seen that I'm like, that doesn't sit right with me. And, and right. probably some traits there. That's good. So, we'll, you know, we'll, the way you're processing with me is actually how I was processing with her. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're like trying yeah. to be like, hold on, that makes a lot of sense. But then there's like, yeah, oh, right, so I get it. There's like um, so much there that you got to think about. Yeah. So if someone uh, let, let's just talk about your book. Let's make sure we plug it. Yeah. Here. Um, so if someone um, is like, you know what? I don't read a whole lot of books. Why should I read your book? Like, I'm not oh. I'm not the type to pick up a book, but I'll maybe I'll think about it because you've you've what you've said on the podcast is really good. What what do you think um, someone's going to learn if they read your book? Uh, like what what do you hope? What do you hope someone after they read your book walks away with? Yeah. So that's a great question. And, and it's a question I was asking myself, like, why am I writing this book? How am I going to write this book? I will say that when I was pitching, so there's a whole process to get published, mm -hmm. which isn't fun. I don't recommend it. Um, but wasn't it when I was pitching myself, everyone wanted me to write my book in like an essay format. Um, what you see a lot of books written, like, mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing, I'm not knocking on the essay format books. Yeah. I really felt in my spirit that I was supposed to write this as a memoir, um, not as um, like a nonfiction book. And, and there were several reasons for that. But I think the biggest reason is I wanted people to feel seen. I get messages all of the time from people who have read the book and said, you have put words to my lived experience that I couldn't articulate before, mm. you know, thank you. I feel seen this happened to me. I feel like you took a chapter out of my book and wrote it down and I feel validated and I feel seen. And so that's one reason I really think if you read the book, especially if you're a woman, I, I am obviously definitely, if you're a woman, I think you're going to identify with it. Um, but another reason I wrote it as a memoir is because I wanted to talk about my failures and my shortcomings and the things I had to unlearn. Like I said, I was in a, a mission. Um, I worked in missions and that context of coming from white evangelical Christianity was deeply flawed. And I got called out really hard about white supremacy and white saviorism in me. Mm. And I wrote it down and I wrote those emails, those really extremely painful emails that this guy wrote to me. Um, in retrospect, they were very painful. Now I just see them as like, I needed that. I needed that. I needed someone to tell me to do better. Um, and so that's another reason I think um, through learning from my mistakes, you can hopefully avoid <laughs> making some of the mistakes I've made. Um, and I think I do to toot my own horn. I think I do a really good job of connecting the issue of Christian patriarchy. So this, you know, traditional gender roles, purity culture, mm -hmm. and connecting it to the harm that we're seeing all over the world to women all over the world. Because like I said, I did a lot of missions work all over the globe with women ranging from female genital mutilation to sex trafficking. And I even talk about this one experience I had um, 
where I was working with women who had been trafficked in the Philippines. And, um, you know, one of the nights I was there, I was talking to a woman, it was her first night and, um, she didn't want to be there. She didn't want to go with these guys that wanted to buy her for the night. And so, I mean, it's a whole long story, but I ended up buying her for lack of a better term before these men cut these six drunk men. And these men got really angry because they felt entitled to her and her body and um, tried to take her anyways. And I ended up arguing with the bar managers and like won the argument and was able to prove that I paid for her first. And it was like this huge like conflict. The whole bar was staring at us and she was able to go home safe. But these men got really, really angry that they they were denied something they felt they were entitled to. And in their anger, they just pulled another woman off the stage and took her. And I remember that woman looking back at us with nothing but terror in her eyes. And to give a little bit of more backstory, the, um, I know women that I have worked with who have been murdered by their clients. Um, and so I didn't know what was going to happen to her that night. Um, I felt like in some way I was definitely responsible because I made these men angry. They were, you know, drunk men are bad, but angry drunk men are worse. And I just felt like I had made the situation worse. And I remember like, God, what am I even doing here? Like we can help one woman and it's so much effort and it's so much work. And it seems to be worth nothing because she's so quickly replaced. And that was the story I had seen again and again, I might be able to help this one woman, but then there's another story of violence. There's another story of sexual assault. There's another story of sexual abuse. It's just overwhelming. These stories don't stop happening. And I'm like, God, what do I even do? Because I don't feel like this is enough. I don't feel like I'm doing it right. I don't feel like this is the work I'm meant to be doing. And I remember I didn't sleep that night. Um, I was really having a crisis of faith and, and, and calling and what was I even doing? And the next night, I feel like God gave me an answer. Like, why does this happen? And I feel like he answered it. And I went to this bar. And these American men called us over and were asking us what we were doing there. And we told them, oh, we're partnering with this ministry that helps women get a college education, la di da di da And we turned the question back on these men and we said, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And this man said that he came to get the respect he deserved, that women in the United States did not know their place. They were not submissive enough, but these women here who were exploited mm. knew how to please a man and they knew how to treat men. And he went on this really long um monologue about women not knowing their place. And as he was talking, I'm like, this, this is so familiar. This is so familiar. This is so familiar. Where have I heard this? And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This is what I had heard from Christian pastors, my entire upbringing. And it finally connected to me. This is not about, this is not representative of Christ. This is harming women. These teachings that say that men deserve respect and should get it at all costs. These teachings that I had heard from Christian pastors, they are the problem. They are driving the sex trade here. 
they are driving the abuse I've encountered. They're driving the abuse that I've lived through. They're driving through female genital mutilation. It's all connected to this idea that men are better than women and women are there to serve men. It's all stemming from that. And so why is the church, this place that's supposed to be a place of liberation and life, Mm -hmm. teaching these toxic teachings that have vast amounts of harm. And it was just this moment of connection. And I felt like God wanted me to quit my job and tell everyone what I learned. And so that's what I've been doing is we got to get to the root of this. This is not about lust. This is about men being entitled to women's bodies. This is about men feeling that women were created for them. This is the problem. And the church is deeply complicit and I will call it out until the day I die. So that's my, I think that's why you should read my book. So that's a long elevator. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's a great elevator pitch. No, um, I I would say everything you said was great. I want to say I'm, I'm four or five chapters in, so I'm not, you're a great storyteller. So you tell these stories really well. Um, and you hit the ground running. You like, you don't like, you don't like ease into it. You're like right into like the hard <laughs> yeah. stories, the stuff that people mm-hmm. need to hear. So like be prepared once you open this book and start reading, it's going to hit right away to serious mm-hmm. topics. Um, I think guys should be reading this too. Oh, so absolutely. I, I, I know you, you said like um, you had mentioned women, but like, I think especially, and, and I think all guys, especially if you've grown up in purity culture, you should be reading it because it's going to connect, I think even deeper to some of your lived experience or in the evangelical church in general. But even if you haven't, you you've experienced the power dynamics because they're in society, even if Mm -hmm. they're, even if you're not in the church, but then also I feel an obligation to even like double, triple down. If you have if you listen to beyond boundaries podcast or go to the belong collective and you're checking this out, I want to say, if you are a father of a daughter, please read this book. I just think it opens up some understanding and look, it shouldn't just have to be your daughter. People are people. It should be Mm -hmm. that you have a concern for women in general, but I think as a father, I have a greater concern to, to be mindful of women's issues in a way that it, if, if, if I was selfish enough to not care when I didn't have a daughter, hopefully that wouldn't be the case. But at the same time, now that I do have a daughter, I have a vested interest in the systems not being the same as she comes into yeah. adulthood is what I guess I'm trying to say. Again, I should hope that for all of humanity, but at the same time, um, I have a special connection with my daughter. I want her to experience a different kind of liberation in who she is. And so um, I think those of you who are hashtag girl dads, need to be reading this book too i just want to put that out there um yeah uh any final words or anything else you would want to say or or share with the audience obviously let them know where they can find out you know connect with you as far as like instagram and all that that's how i connected with you and i I love your Mm -hmm. instagram oh thank you (laughs) it's a little fiery if you want some it is in your life yeah Um, the eight, yeah, the eight well, comes out, the eight comes out on Instagram, yes, right? Yeah. Everyone thinks I'm an eight, which is fine. Um, uh, yeah, but I, anyways, we can get into Instagram right. later, but, um, yeah. So I just want to thank you for having me on. And I really deeply appreciate it when men are willing to learn because sadly, that is not the case. Oftentimes, um, I, I learned a ton today. 
I learned a ton today. Like I'm, I'm, I've got like follow-up things that I wrote down. Like you got to listen to that yeah. and listen to that. And so like, yeah, I learned a ton yeah. today. And I'm still, and I'm still going to learn as I finish this book. So it's like, I, yeah. I think the posture of learning is where we need to be. And especially those of us who mm-hmm. have been taught we're in power. So I yeah. totally doubled down on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really grateful for men being willing to learn because that is not an experience that women, I don't usually have men that are like, oh, well, let me talk about your book. And so I am appreciative of well, you. Well, time out. Cause that that's part of purity culture, or at least part of church culture is that mm-hmm. I shouldn't learn from a woman. I'm yes. a man. I shouldn't learn from yeah. a woman, but I'm sitting here for the last over an hour listening to Megan yeah. tell me and teach me about this. Cause I don't know about this. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't experience things that you've experienced. And I think yeah. that people's church is us being willing to learn from each other, us yeah. learn from our queer brother and sister, our, mm-hmm. um, our minority brother or sister, or, you know, our, our person of color. Like, I think th- this is where it's like, I think an openness to learn from the lived experiences of others and the education they've picked up along the way. Like mm-hmm. if we don't have that, we are living in the rural rulers church because like there's, right that and I, I shed that a while ago and I'm I want to learn from anybody and, and everybody I can who's yeah. ultimately lifting up an ethic of love which I sense yeah. that you know anything that's moving toward equity is is moving toward a more loving understanding yeah. of our world and how we relate to one another so sorry I didn't mean to cut you off there I just I just realized <laughs> no, when you good. said that when you said that I was like well of course that is, that's part of yeah. purity culture too, is that I don't have to, yeah. it's not even that I have to right. deval- devalue your experience. It's that mm-hmm. you don't, you don't even get a seat at the table as a teacher to teach me anything. So right. why would you, why would I ever have to pause and learn right. from you? Which is a whole nother thing we could have spent a whole episode talking about. It's just, right. I guess there's going to have to be a part two is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but then if you think about the power differentials, right? Like it's exactly people are even there. blind to the power differentials. And then we know that these power differentials are exactly what's causing sexual assault. And so I think there is so much. There's all that to say. If you're a man, yeah. please read it. Please listen. I, I might make you angry, but I hope that you can learn through it. Um, uh, yeah. So pick up my book women rising listen to the podcast there's some really great episodes i think you can learn from um, faith and feminism and if you want to find my spicy instagram uh, <laughs> it's megan chance my name is hard to spell but i'm sure it'll be in the show notes yeah so. it'll be in the show notes yeah, yeah yeah yeah. awesome and i'll i'll link the uh i'll make sure to link the uh, podcast in the show notes too megan thank you so much for being on this was a really great conversation and i feel like as great of a conversation as it was there was so much more that we could have covered. So maybe in oh, the yeah. future we'll talk again because I really, really appreciate you and all your work. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. You just finished another episode of Beyond Boundaries. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, make sure to visit the links in the description. Finally, consider donating to my dad's Patreon or Venmo. It helps cover all the costs of hosting this podcast in all the places you enjoy listening. Any amount helps. All the links are in the description of this podcast. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.